tell you a story. It's a true story. Many years ago, a man had a, a palatial estate. He had many servants and employees. He took good care of them. And he worked hard, and he expected the same from those who worked on his estate. But there was one young man who was particularly hardworking and especially talented. As time went by, it was clear that he was a leader. He was a good manager. The owner basically gave him responsibility over the whole estate. Until one day, tragedy struck. One day, when the man came home from work... His beautiful wife was sobbing. She was inconsolable. When he could finally get her to speak, she told him what had happened. You see, the young man, that man who was so trusted, that young man had found her alone in their bedroom. He became very intimate in his approach, and when she resisted, with no one around to stop him, he attacked her. She fought him off, and she ran until she found the other workers, It was terrifying to see this young man's true colors come out, and who knows what he would have done to her if she hadn't escaped. What would you think about a person like this? Now, God's laws are clear about situations like this, situations that involve rape, for example. What if it were your wife, your sister, your daughter? What would you do? What would you think? You be the judge. But you see, if you judge this man guilty, you'd be putting an innocent man to death. Let me tell you another story. Again, this story is true. Many years ago, in a small village, a man and a woman were in love. Uh, He was not a wealthy man, but but he was well-skilled, and he was respected in the community. And she was very much liked by all her neighbors as well, and, and, and highly thought of. They had grand plans for their life together. He asked her to be his bride, and the plans for the wedding began. The wedding preparations, they took time, but with only a a few short months to go, excitement was in the air. Until one day, see, because one day the truth came out. She didn't try to hide it. How, How could she? I mean, everyone would know soon enough because she was pregnant. Uh, he, he couldn't believe that she could be so unfaithful. I mean, how could she do this to him? And the neighbors, oh, the neighbors talk. What would you think about a person like that? What would you do? What would you say to your neighbors if you saw a woman you knew like this? I mean, what lessons could you teach your children from this woman's behavior? It was obvious The woman was engaged, and she had been unfaithful. How could it be denied? She was pregnant, and she was not married. The situation was very clear. What would you do, and what would you say? You be the judge. One last story. And again, this one is true. Again, one last long ago. But this time, the story is about a man and his son. He loved his son, or at least everyone thought, until the day, at least uh, according to the story that the employees tell, until the day that he tried to kill his son. Now, the details aren't clear, except that it seems that he tried to trick his son into going onto a uh, a pilgrimage with him. 
And his dedication to his religion was so great that the final step in the pilgrimage required him to kill his son. Now, I could go into more of the details, but I think you get the idea about what kind of man we're speaking of here. What would you do to a man who would not only consider, but actually attempt to kill his own son? The law is clear and severe. What would you do? What would you say? You be the judge. But again, your likely judgment and mine would be in error. It would be utterly wrong. You know, how quick we are to judge, to draw conclusions. How quick we are to judge. It's so natural. It's so human. It's so compelling and so interesting to judge, isn't it? I mean, that's why the TV is full of the courtroom dramas, and it has been for, well, about as long as TV has been around. Perry Mason, Matlock, and on to today, I mean, Judge Judy and the other judges, uh, it's fascinating to watch, and people are drawn into the dramas in the courtroom. It's really fascinating to judge, isn't it? And that's perhaps why Christ said these words in Matthew chapter 7 that are so familiar. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, verse 2, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So he said, judge not that you be not judged. But how, how can this be? We have to judge all the time, don't we? I mean, truly, we have to make judgments every day. In personal relationships, uh, with whom do we spend our time? And, and with whom should we be spending our time? We have to make judgments. When someone's talking to us and telling us something, can trying to convince us or persuade us, do we believe what the person in front of us is saying? Or do we withhold judgment and think to ourselves, no, I judge what they're saying is, is not correct. Or when we hear something, do we repeat it, we make a judgment as to whether we pass it on or not? Do we talk to that person who offended us or do we just let it go? Would they even listen anyway? We have to make a judgment, don't we? Do we listen out of politeness when a friend begins to put down somebody else, let's say, for example? Or do we change the conversation to something more positive? In our work, do we take this job or that job? Uh, Do we believe the boss who tells us he can't pay us this week and he'll pay us next week? In our family life, for example, do we let our teenage daughter go see Revenge of the Space Nerds or whatever it might be with her friends? Do we let her go anywhere with those friends? We have to make judgments all the time, don't we? We have to make judgments about situations and about people. And and living requires making judgments, doesn't it? We can't get away from it. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read here as the, as the, as in the middle part of the chapter here, he says, I'm breaking into the thought to get right to the, the key point here. He says, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? So in other words, we're told we have to be able to judge those who are inside and, and make judgments about how we deal with each other and 
Again, some cases involve that. Some cases involve making decisions in our life. So we have to decide all kinds of things. But what I'd like to focus on today is the conclusions that we draw, the judgments that we make that involve other people. Because these can get very complicated. And and it's critical that we do this well because our own future will be determined to some degree and how well we handle this. You see, the judgments that we make of other people affect not only them, but they also affect us. So let's go back and let's look at the three accounts, and I'll show you what I mean. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 39. I know you knew what I was talking about, and you were probably, probably already had your finger there ready to, ready to turn. So, so let's do it. Genesis chapter 39 where we read a little bit more about this account. We read in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph, we read, had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. And thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, And none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was, when she saw that he left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. And you heard the other story, didn't you? So we see that a very different story is told in the words that we just read, than what you heard before and what the wife told to her husband Potiphar. So what's the lesson that we can, we can learn from this account? Well, very simply stated, we, we have to be very careful with making judgments about someone based upon what someone else tells us. Because, and here's the key number one, because we may not know the whole story. We may not know the whole story. 
Now, Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. And we read a very simple but powerful and, and very wise proverb right here. Verse 17. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. How often has, has your impression of someone been, been negatively influenced before you ever met them? And, and then later, when you got to know them, you found that the person wasn't so bad after all. How often have you in school, remember in elementary school or in high school or in college, in classes, you heard about a teacher that was horrible. Mrs. McGillicuddy is so hard. Her, she teaches, she's so mean. She teaches, uh, she makes you do all this homework and, and, and this is a horrible teacher. You don't, you're in college, don't take that class. And then you say, well, I have to because the way, that's the way my schedule is. And you take the class and say, wow, I don't find this teacher is so bad. Frankly, I think she's a very good teacher. I really enjoy this class. Yeah, it might be a, a bit tough, but I enjoy the class. You ever had that type of thing happen? Or again, with someone that, that you meet, you hadn't known, but what you heard is not what matches up with your interactions with them. This is the way it happens sometimes. Or maybe even after you already knew someone, Someone else told you something that so-and-so had done, and, and it really turned you off to that, that person, even though you never actually saw that type of behavior, behavior yourself. But after that bug was in your ear, every time you interacted with them, you couldn't help but begin to, at, to attribute some of the things they do to that negative impression that was in the back of your mind. You said, ah, Yep, he was right. And you begin to, a case begins to be made because of the bug that we have in, in our ear. So every little bit that we can, it adds to evidence that they, yep, that person was just as you were told. So, so we need to keep always in mind the fact that in dealing with other people, in terms of judging and making decisions and our interpersonal relationships, that we don't know the whole story. First Kings chapter three. First Kings chapter three. And verse sixteen. One of the most famous judgments of Solomon. Two women who were harlots came to the king, and they stood before him. One woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she, while she was in the house. And then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together, no one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. And the other woman said, no, the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. And thus they spoke before the king. And here we have the setup for this 
challenge to King Solomon. I love it. It's great. It's very helpful in child-rearing because, you know, when your kids come to you and they're arguing over a toy, there's always an easy answer. Just like King Solomon. Divide the toy in half. You each get half. And suddenly everything changes. But in this case, we read, for example, in verse 23, the king said, The one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. The king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. And you know the rest of the story. But the the real wisdom lay in recognizing first the fact that he didn't know the whole story And there was virtually no way he could be able to get the whole story out of them by just what they said. So the wisdom he had was in recognizing, okay, there's a a back story to this of what really happened. And so I'm going to, based upon the fact that there's this back story, I'm going to take a particular action and let the truth reveal itself. That was the the wisdom. You know, if we go to Acts chapter 21... We see a situation here with Paul. That's a a similar type example. Not, no one was, no one was cut in half or anything like that, but, but we do see where there was more to the story than, than appeared. Acts chapter 21. And we begin here in verse uh, verse 15. After those days, we packed up and went to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us as, as received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went into with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. You see where I'm going. See, the concern here was that many people had their their minds made up about Paul, you see, here, here, the reality was he was willing to die for the truth, ultimately did die. That's, that was the reality. But yet, in many people's minds, what he was teaching was way wrong. And was, and, and they, he was being called into account for it. And so, we see, they have been informed, verse 21, about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? You almost think there's maybe a little bit of doubt there, that they are thinking the best, but not a hundred percent sure. And so what then, he says, the assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them. So in other words, he was going to have to take some actions to prove that he was the real thing. You understand what I'm saying? There was, in other words, the, the backstory should have certainly proven what he was about. And, and yet, 
And yet, the, these people who spoke poorly of Paul, of Paul, they weren't bad. They just didn't understand the whole story. And they were suspicious of Paul. And so we see ultimately, he says, we have four men who have taken a vow. Take them, be purified with them, pay their expenses so they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things on which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you keep yourself also, but that you, you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. This wasn't all they should do. But in other words, these were key issues that faced these Gentiles who were being called, and so those were, that's why those were highlighted. It wasn't okay for them to murder, steal, lie, commit adultery, etc. We understand that. But So we're back, backtracking just a little bit. The idea is this, is that with Paul, there were those who who actually didn't know the whole story and were making judgments because of it. So how often do we make decisions without understanding the whole story? How often do we make judgments of people and what people are doing, what people have said, without really knowing the big picture? Uh, A number of years ago, when... uh, when my father was uh, director of CAD, I foolishly one time began to sort of, um, I began to, let's say, suggest in a maybe a very forward way that um, uh, the feast site situation really could be done better. And um, this, was, uh, this was many, many, many years ago. <laughs> But I said, Dad, I said, you know, um, look, we, you know, we've got a feast site here and here and here, but why don't we have one here? And, and that one over here, you know, that one doesn't make a lot of sense. And uh, I don't, you know, have, has, it, has this been thought of or has that been thought of? And, you know, you know, maybe some things are not being considered. And so we were, I was, you know, saying, have you, have you really thought about this? And so he said, well, he said, okay. Uh, let me tell you something. And he proceeded to explain in the next 15 or 20 minutes uh, the ramifications of why this site was here and that site was there and this one was here and there was none here. This was After 15 or 20 minutes, it was pretty well laid out. And I, what could I say? I said, okay. <laughs> okay. I guess I didn't know the whole story. <laughs> And it was pretty clear that I didn't know the whole story. And from that time on, I've tried to, I, I realized that sometimes there may be more to the story than meets the eye. And so you just try to, try to keep your mouth shut if you don't really know what you're talking about. And it goes a long ways. You know, there are, there are a lot of Proverbs that speak to this directly. Um, Proverbs chapter 26. <clears throat> Proverbs 26. Because when we make assumptions or judgments about other people by by not knowing the whole story, sometimes we even believe what are false reports. And it creates strife. It creates friction between people because of the fact that we don't know the whole story. And so, for, for example, and, and I, there, are, there are a lot of Proverbs that speak to it, but I, I selected one here to, to read Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 20. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. He says... 
And where there is no talebearer, strife seizes. Talebearer, a gossip or a slander. Someone who, who's, who talks and, and, and what they're saying stirs up trouble. Often because, can be because they don't know what they're, they're, they're talking about or it can be with, with intent. But there's a, there's a stirring up of trouble when contention is there. And um, he says, verse 21, as charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer or someone who's spreading gossip or this type of thing, he says, are like tasty trifles and they go down into the utmost body. So First Timothy chapter 5, one in the, in the New Testament, where we see a similar uh, challenge here. First Timothy chapter 5, along the similar lines about just taking care that we, we try to recognize that we may not know the whole story. So be careful about judging and gossiping and slandering and speaking ill. First Timothy chapter 5. There he's speaking within within the church. Apparently, at least an issue an issue that had to be uh, had to be confronted. Something needed to be said. He said, talking about uh, well, let's first go to verse eleven. When they they but refused the younger widows in terms of of, of traveling and uh, working along in uh, with with them. He says this is back to verse nine. It's uh, it refers to that, but. Uh, specifically here, it says in verse 11, refuse the younger widows for when, the, when they have begrown, begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And here's, here's the, the key here, verse 13. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. And so he highlights and says, this is, this is a, this is a problem. Uh, talking and stirring up uh, uh, strife and trouble. And many times that happens because we don't know the whole story. So we have to be careful in terms of our relationships when people are saying things to recognize sometimes we may be hearing Potiphar's wife's story instead of the real story. So be careful about making judgments if that be the case. Now, let's look at the next example. Let's go to... The New Testament here to Matthew. And we read in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That's a little bit of a different way of telling the story, isn't it? But we read verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, in this case, 
you could have seen the situation with your own eyes. In other words, you could see that she was with child. There was no mistaking that she was betrothed, and that's why this it happened as it did. There's no mistaking that she was betrothed, and yet, not married, and yet she was with child, right? In other words, your eyes were seeing just that in front of you. Yet, even with your eyes telling you one thing, you would not have understood the reality, would you? See, the reality was that he was not the son of Joseph. But that doesn't mean that the logical conclusion was correct. I say logical. Even though you saw it with your eyes, your conclusions would not have been, have been all correct. You see, what the logical conclusion led to was what we read here in, for example, Mark chapter 6. For all the neighbors and the relatives and the friends, maybe not friends any longer after they saw what happened, but the logical conclusion is Mark chapter 6. And verse verse 1, he went out from there and came to his own country. He's talking about Jesus, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James? Interesting the way it's put, it, it refers to Mary, not Joseph. As if everyone knew that his father was not Joseph. You know, there are some who argue that, well, this scripture is not referring to uh, them uh, uh, speaking of the knowledge that he was an illegitimate child in terms of what they saw. But I, I think it's, it's, the reality is it's written in, in, our, in our Bibles. So if it was written down for our benefit, surely it was known that he was, humanly speaking, in terms of the the normal arrangements, that he was illegitimate. Some will claim, no, no, this was something that was made up afterwards by his disciples and, and all of that. But here the indication is, is that he's referred to as the son of Mary. Now you look at the other disciples and who are they called? Son of. Many of the names are Simon Barjona, etc. They're The son of was the typical way to refer. And that goes even to our are, are many names the, through the, the centuries. McNair, son of Nair. That, that's, that's part of the way our language works through much of our Western culture. But he wasn't the son of Joseph. He was the son of Mary. So what was known about him? What was thought of, about him? John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is another, I think it's another reference to the fact that he was known as illegitimate. John chapter 8. We're, we're breaking into this, <clears throat> this section where he's talking to uh, the Jews. And uh, he says, verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. This is John 8, verse 37. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. 
And verse 41, the key scripture here, he says, You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. We weren't like you. We were not born of fornication. We are not illegitimate. So their conclusion, I, I think logically, was that Jesus was, was tainted with the stain of fornication. He was illegitimate. And again, that conclusion is right but wrong because we can be fooled by our own eyes. Not what someone else says now. We're not talking about what someone else says, what someone else reported. We're talking about what we see with our own eyes. Can this happen to us where we can make judgments by what we see with our own eyes and yet be completely wrong in terms of reality? Let's go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Here we read about this woman in Simon's home. Verse 36, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, who when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. Uh, wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In other words, and then going on, just one couple more verses here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he said, Teacher, say it. And then he goes on and gives this, this, uh, this parable. And we go down to verse 43, or rather verse 44. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. In other words, you know, it, to him, at what he was looking at was a sinner, this, this sinful woman. And she was defiling his house virtually to, to be there at all. That's what appeared. And you know what? That was correct. She was a sinner. She was what she was. What he saw was correct. But it's what he didn't see that was the big picture, wasn't it? So... We, we have an example here of what can happen to us where sometimes we, what we see is not the whole story. What is it that we don't understand about the person sitting next to us? That we don't know about the person sitting next to us or the person behind us or the person in front of us. What, what battles and what challenges are they facing about which we know nothing and that we can't even begin to imagine Because all we see is their face in front of us. And do we really know their heart? Do we really know the battles of the mind, the battles of the spirit that they are facing? Do we understand the battles of repentance that they have faced in their life? And we may just be seeing somebody who has a lot of faults because we can see them, the way they act, the way they talk. To us, 
It's pretty obvious what they're about. And yet there's more to it than meets the eye, of which we're not, we're not aware at all. And so what we see with our eyes can lead us to judgments that are not truly accurate. Psalm 51. How well do people know David's, David's heart? I think that we see it enunciated here in, in the Psalms in particular. <clears throat> but don't you think it would be very easy to make critical judgments of David by the citizens of Israel? I can tell you they did. You know how? <laughs> because his son was able to take more than half of the country away from him to actually depose him. So apparently some people weren't too impressed with David, wouldn't you say? Because they saw a man who, and then you can fill in the blanks, they saw his faults. So much so that Absalom was able to take and turn their hearts. We see he sat in the gate and he would say, you know, the king is not really doing a very good job at making judgments. He ought to be a better judge. Yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. And then you can go through the whole list of the faults. As I said... I, 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 I will say this, that many people did not see David's heart because of the civil war that was in, engendered by Absalom, who was able to, to turn their hearts. So we see in Psalm 51, however, we see the heart of a man who had the heart of God, despite his faults, despite his flaws. And here's what we read. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. <clears throat> this psalm is keyed to the time when he committed the sin with Bathsheba and, and Uriah. And we see what was going on inside his mind as he was wrestling with this, this, what he had done. Even while his soldiers, who were still in the field, might have begun to, to despise him for, for what he, the command that he gave to Joab concerning Uriah. Yet what it was in his heart was this. <clears throat> Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Bought out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Can, can, we, some, can we imagine the person that we... That we question and that we see in a negative way. Can we imagine them saying this type of thing before God in their private prayers? Very very well may be the case. They recognize their challenges just like we do. And when other people see us, we would, we would hope that they would not just look upon what they see as, as, as everything about us. But they would give us the benefit of the doubt that actually there is there's more to our heart and we are we are trying to overcome and and not be like we are when our weaknesses show he says verse 7 purge me with hyssop and i shall be clean wash me and i shall be whiter than snow make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities and create in me a clean heart o god and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That was the heart of, of David. John chapter 7. John chapter 7 then. First category we've talked about is, 
is to recognize, as we begin to make judgments of other people, recognize that we may not know the whole story. Sometimes we need to, we need to have mercy, and we need to, we need to be careful, take care. Sometimes we need to recognize that our eyes are not actually revealing the whole truth. John chapter 7. This is why we read here then in John chapter 7. And verse, uh, let's go right to verse 24 to a key here. Verse, or verse 22 and verse 23 talks about uh, circumcision and different things. But verse 24 then, a key, do not then judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Christ's words specifically to the point I'm making. And that seems contrary to what is logical. Because in the court of law, the most compelling evidence is what? Eyewitness, isn't it? Eyewitness accounts. That's a principle we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, where we read that a man was not to be put to death except by two or three witnesses. So eyewitness accounts are the most compelling. But they are not always right. They, we can be fooled by what we see with our own eyes. I, I ran across something from the uh, National Center for State Courts because I, I got to thinking about some of the DNA evidence that recently has overturned some cases. And so uh, as I was digging through this, I, I found an article that I thought was interesting that speaks to what, what I'm talking about here. And the title of this article, again, it's the National Center for State Courts, and it's, it's actually uh, their recommendations that are being made by many of those who consult state courts and judicial systems to give less weight to eyewitness testimony because of all the problems that have been found with it over the past 50 years. So here's a little bit from the article. Research has found that the article is titled, The Trouble with Eyewitness Identification Testimony in Criminal Cases. And just here's a little bit. Research has found that eyewitness identification testimony can be very unreliable. Social scientists have demonstrated through studies since the 1960s that there was significant reason to be concerned about the accuracy of the eyewitness identification testimony used in criminal trials. Although witnesses can often be very confident that their memory is accurate when identifying a suspect, the malleable nature of human memory and visual perception makes eyewitness testimony one of the most unreliable forms of evidence. Courts took very little notice of the problems associated with eyewitness identification until DNA evidence began to be used to exonerate criminal defendants, in some cases decades after they were convicted. In irrefutable irrefutable cases of wrongful conviction, people both within and outside the judiciary began to question the factors that led to each wrongful conviction. It became clear that the predominant cause was inaccurate eyewitness identification. In other words, you can have suggestions that are made to your mind based on even other people that were around, based on lineups and all kinds. They go into all kinds of detail about how how eyewitness identification can actually be wrong. Look, there's something to be learned here for us, and, and, and we need to learn it in terms of having mercy when it comes to what we think we see in other people. You remember, remember a few years ago, uh, Mr. Ames gave a sermon with a focus. Um, the title was Judges in Training. So you, it's from a few years ago now at this point. But he talked about the incompetence of many in positions of judgment today. 
And he quoted from a book that highlighted the prevalence of incompetence in our legal system. And, and he emphasized in that sermon specifically the role that we'll play as judges in the millennium. This is why I'm saying if we are going to be serving, if we're judges in training, as he was talking about that day, then we, this part of our, our destiny, then it's part of what we need to be learning about today. And one of the things is to take care with what we see. Let me show you one scripture in, in Isaiah that actually then points to the millennium and, and actually speaks to this particular point then. Isaiah chapter 11. Not sure if you've ever thought about this, but we have this passage that speaks specifically of how we'll judge and specifically to the part that what we see, our impression with our eyes, plays. Isaiah chapter 11, verse, verse 3, it's talking about the branch that shall grow, Jesus Christ. Verse 3, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. Again, that sounds so, that sounds so contrary to what we would assume. But yet, this branch, Jesus Christ, it says, will not judge by the seeing of the eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. What has been said, what has been told. Look what it says. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Just because we see doesn't mean we really know the heart. We don't see a person's inner struggle. And we can misjudge motivation because of the actions that we see. Uh, One last point to bring this uh, to home. You see, just because... You're frowning right now as I'm talking doesn't mean that you're not listening and catching what I say, what I'm saying. You may just be thinking really hard about what I'm, what I'm saying, right? And when you think, you frown. Just because you're holding your head right now, it doesn't mean that even if I'm seeing that, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're adamantly opposed to what I'm saying. Even though my eyes may be seeing this, you just may have a headache. This happened to me before. I I I, uh, I thought for sure a person uh, didn't like what I was saying one time as I was speaking, and they looked really uncomfortable until afterwards they said when I spoke to them because I was concerned. I said, "I, I you okay?" And they said, "Well, I really enjoyed the sermon, but for the last 15 minutes I had to go to the bathroom so bad that I just could not concentrate. I was just being too polite, being polite." And in their minds, they were making a sacrificial, painful, a painful attempt to be polite. To me, it looked they were like they were really, really angry about what I was saying. So, you know, if you're frowning, if you're holding your head, it may be just your thing. Now, if you are holding your ears like this, that's a different story. Now, uh, it may mean something else. So what can I say? So I think you get the points. The point then, we have to be careful of what we see. In other words, give each other the benefit of the doubt because we rarely know the whole story and we can be fooled by our eyes. Last scenario that I, that I posited at the beginning, let's go back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Genesis 22, and again, you probably, as I challenge for you to be the judge, 
By the way, if you haven't caught it, that is the title of the sermon. You be the judge. It's not here comes the judge. It's you be the judge. (laughs) Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So story goes on. Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I said his employees, but uh, you get the point here. Stay with the donkey and the the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. And then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And wow, what a statement that was, wasn't it? A prophecy that was so profound that would be inspired to come out of Abraham's mouth at this time. That was not for his son, but, but that's another story. So the two of them went together, and they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And he stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son, And verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. He made clear there was no human sacrifice that was ever to be asked except of God, the father himself. But how do we look at this example in terms of our of our judging people and what's happening well what's this we we all have a a personal relationship with god and he's working with us individually our faith our conscience and our life it's, it's unique isn't it the track of our life is unique for each and every one of us even brothers and sisters have a different track of their life, even though they were born within a short time, perhaps. Even identical twins are going to have a different track of their life in some way, shape, or form. Every single human being who has ever lived has a unique track of their life. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And our relationship with God is unique as well. Romans chapter 14. You see, what was going on here was specific to Abraham. What, what we might see from the outside looking at what happened here would not show us the fact that God was working with Abraham in a very specific way. That whole account is about what, it's about Abraham, wasn't it? It's about Abraham showing in, in this way why God did it this way at this time. We, we, you know, the cultural milieu and everything can be studied. But the reality is, even if we know nothing about the the culture of the day, we read the words and we understand what was going on there. 
We understand the sacrifice that was being asked of him. And we, by reading, you might say from the third-person perspective, we realize that Abraham's faith was being tested to the last, last nth, wasn't it? Because of what he was asked to do. We understand that, but would anyone who is standing around watching this happen understand it the way we do because we have God's perspective? How could they? How could they? So God, we we all have a personal relationship with God, and so does our neighbor. And what is happening with our neighbor, we, we may not see, but just a tiny, tiny window, a keyhole into what God is doing with them. Oh, we can make assumptions. We can say, oh, they're having a trial. They must really need that trial. (laughs) That's right. But in reality, God may be working with them. He may be saying, I'm going to allow that trial to happen because they're really strong and couldn't do that with you over here because, uh, wow, who knows what would happen. We don't, we, we can, you know, we can, you know, have fun and make all kinds of guesses, but the reality is we don't, we don't know because God works with each of us individually. And a person that we're, we're watching something happen to them, we may, we have no idea how God is working with them. And, and so we need to be a little bit careful about making judgments about them and what's happening around them. Give a little bit of, of room for God to work with them before we, we write them off mentally. And we make judgments about what they are and their life and, and their decisions. You know, we can make decisions. It's very hard for us not to make decisions about other people's decisions in their life. And be very critical of decisions that other people make in their life when really we, we may not have a handle in the situation at all. Romans chapter 14, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Is speaking to the fact that we're all different. And where God's working with us, training our conscience, working with our mind to understand, to grasp. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. God's working with him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. Wow, what a powerful statement about the other guy. You know, God's, God's going to work with them. They'll, they'll make it. And so better be really careful about making judgments. Later, God would say, why, why, were you, why were you looking at that person that way? I was really working with them and training them and helping them. You know, it can happen with children, can it? As you're, as you're raising children, they're all different and they're different ages. And so you, you have to make decisions about even... Uh, correction and decisions about what you allow them to do or not do and and you can't you can't be exactly the same across the board because they're all different <clears throat> other people other parents we all make decisions about other people and how they parent their kids don't we we all do that i would never do that with my kids you know and we we do this we we fall into this because because of our experiences and all that and and it's it's natural to do that but we recognize with our own kids that we're going through. Sometimes we realize that one son or that one daughter, they're right now, they're very sensitive about that issue. And we realize, I better be careful because I'm, 
I, I, they're on the edge when they're real little. Sometimes it's, you know, the emotional edge sometimes. And we have to, we have to distract them uh, as a means of correction as opposed to necessarily saying, uh, being a little more straightforward with it until they learn. And anyway, these are all the, you know, the, the, the child rearing techniques that you have to, you have to learn over time because you have to work with them all individually. And that's the way God does with us. So we have to be careful that we don't let our preferences, our conscience, give us permission to judge others by our standards. Because the reality is maybe, just maybe, our standards are not exactly aligned with God's standards, and we're still a work in progress as well. He says here, one person esteems one day above another. We know this is not talking about the Sabbath, but... It's a story for another day. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. The idea here is verse 7. None of us lives to himself, and no no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And so we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to draw closer to God. We're all a work in progress. And, and we have to be careful that we're not like an activist judge today. You know, we, we criticize activist judges. That's judges who interpret the law to try to influence the execution of the law. You know, we can be that with God's law sometimes, can't we? You know, we can interpret God's law as we see fit. Maybe we draw a sharper line in some ways. And, and we go a little bit beyond the laws and the statutes and the judgments and even the principles of, of God when it suits us. And another area over here, we're a little more tolerant, because that suits us as well. And, and we have a little more casual approach to God's ways when it comes to this area over here. But when we analyze and we see other people and the way they, they function, we can, be, we can be critical. Hebrews chapter 4, God's Word is a beautiful thing, because as we read right here, it, it lays... Each one of us, and for our own benefit, it lays open our, our human nature, our human frailty, and even the mercy that is, that is necessary for us, for each other. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, that ultimate promise that we have, not just of a land, not just even of a physical kingdom, but of our part in God's family, ultimately. He says, verse 11, lest anyone fall according to the same example of, of disobedience. For the word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. When we, we read God's word and, and how the accounts of people living God's word sometimes breaking God's word and experiencing the consequences and the attitudes and the minds that we we can peer into through the pages of the Bible. When we do that, we, we, we see the mind of God and how he looks at us and how he's working with us because ultimately it's written in the third person from, the, from God's eye perspective, isn't it? So we, 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 we have that benefit of seeing the big picture. But just imagine... If we were in the moment, if we were in Potiphar's household, and all we heard was Potiphar's wife's story, what would we think? How would we judge? So he says, verse 
12, again, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of, of joints and marrow. The, the most, uh, you know, our joints and our marrow, they are, they are nip and tuck. It's, the marrow is actually inside the joints, isn't it? So that's how sharp the word of God lays open our human nature and our frailties. And he says, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart for our benefit in seeing ourselves as we really are. And so that's why our character, our character, is reflected by how we approach our judgments and our uh, mindset about other people. It reflects our character. And we need God's help to fill us with his mind. We're coming up to the Feast of Pentecost, and we are reminded of God's Holy Spirit and what it, how it, it changes and helps us. And, and a big way that it helps us is in how we perceive other people. Our, the, the mercy, the, the, the understanding that we're, through God's Holy Spirit, that we can have of other people. So Galatians chapter 5, just a couple scriptures and then we'll we'll move to our our conclusion then galatians chapter 5 it really speaks to to this character trait of approaching other people with a great care at at at, at ju- being judgmental towards other people when you look at some of the fruit of god's spirit it it really speaks particularly specifically to that doesn't it he says we're we're reading about the Spirit in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. When we are merciful towards someone else and we give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, does this have not happen? I mean, typically when we're even driving. You know, you drive. How often have you started to pull into, okay, I'm not going to blame you. I'm going to say myself. I have sometimes started to pull into the lane next to me and there was a car in my blind spot. I didn't see, I promise I didn't see it. I promise I didn't see him. And I tried, didn't see you. And, you know, of course, they're you know, like this. And, I, I mean, and you wonder, well, how, how far can you go to try to tell them, I really didn't see you. I'm sorry. But, you know, at, that, at this point, what do you do? All you do is just look straight ahead and just, you know, just to act like, what do you do? You're done for. But you really didn't mean to pull into their lane. You know, it wasn't on purpose. I promise I didn't mean to run you off the road so you had a mailbox and, you know, and everything else, even if that happened. Now, I'm not saying that ever happened to me, but I, I mean, it could. Um, but but you really didn't intend to. But what happens when somebody cuts us off? Say, you know what? They got up this morning and they decided they were going to drive on 485 and they were going to pull right into my lane. I know it. I can tell. They just had that look about them, right? And I'm exaggerating slightly, right? But the reality is we want other people to give us the benefit of the doubt, don't don't we? So do we do the same? How much do we give other people the benefit of the doubt? That just means that we we'll have a, we entertain a, a doubt that they are stupid, that they're making bad decisions, that they're ignorant, that they're out to get us, that, you know, whatever, you make the whole, you know, you can create a list. We entertain a doubt. And we ask the same of, of other people of us, don't we? That's love. 
That's a way of expressing love, that we're, we're willing to absorb a little bit. And, and so he says, joy, peace. Does peace, do we not have more peace when we're willing to not be quick to judge or be judgmental towards other people? Isn't peace created when we are willing to do that, able to do that as a character trait, as part of us? Peace ensues. Long-suffering, need I say more? <laughs> Kindness, is that not reflected in this character trait? Goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Because self-control means that we are not subject to our emotions such that we act and react in a way that we would not really want to. In a way that is not in harmony with what we value, but we don't, we don't have, we haven't exercised the discipline to be able to stop and say, hmm, maybe I ought to give them the benefit of the doubt. So God's Spirit is, it, real, this, this character trait of not being judgmental, recognizing there may be more to it than meets the eye, recognizing sometimes, frankly, our eye isn't telling us the whole story. Or even recognizing, as I said, recognizing that God may be working with an individual in a way that we don't, that we simply don't, don't see. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 3. When Solomon went before God, and asked for his help in fulfilling this job that he had been given, what did he ask for? For what did he ask? What did he desire? We see here in verse 9, I'm, I'm breaking into this whole section here where God appeared to him at Gibeon. In verse 5 we read, and we read how he, Solomon spoke and said, We've, you've shown mercy to me, and and so therefore he said, you've... You, I need your help. I'm a little child in verse 7. I don't know how to go out or come in. And then verse 9, he said, Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart. But there was another part to that, isn't there? An understanding heart for what purpose? An understanding of how to make the most money in the least amount of time. No. How to get away with doing as little work as possible and making the most for it. Isn't that what we want to do today? How many times... Yeah, you know what? What do you want to do? I, you know, I really want to see what I can do. So I'm, I work as little as possible, and I get the, the most money for it. If I can sit at a desk and put my feet up on it, that's what I would do. That would be my perfect job, doing as little amount of work, retiring as quickly po- as possible, retire in five years with a million dollars a year in your, you know, retirement fund. That, wow, yeah, that's me, right? That's that's our world is about that, <laughs> but but that's not what the understanding was for. Is to is to be able to have as much as possible with as little amount of work as possible? No, it wasn't that. He said, your servant, therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. In other words, to exercise my responsibility to, to lead and make decisions, to keep peace. This is what he asked for, understanding to judge. That I may discern between good and evil. 
for who is able to judge this great people of yours? I understand this was an, this was, he's talking about literally exercising judgment, but it takes that mindset of being able to know when and how to show mercy, when and how to execute punishment, and everything in between. This is what Solomon asked for. And this is what, this is the discernment that we need so we can, as we read in Matthew chapter 7, we can be able to not be looking at the, the speck in our brother's eye and not considering the plank in our own, but actually be able to have that be plank free, you might say, so we can have the judgment as to how to help our brother. Big goal in our life should be to be plank free, you know. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we come, you might say, to the end of the story. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read where we left off early on in this sermon. Verse 1, we read, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, then go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? In other words, aren't you able to have the, the discernment and the, the, the understanding to be able to work things out and, and not be so critical and so unwilling to, to give that you aren't able to work peaceably through God's Holy Spirit among yourselves as a congregation there in Corinth? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to, unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Yes, manage. Say that's, that's part of it, but it's, it's to discern. Because in, when we manage, we discern, don't we? So it's, it's the ability to, to see other people through eyes of, of mercy, of love, of long-suffering, of care, Sometimes of service by highlighting something that needs to be said, but doing it in a way where we, we recognize that maybe they're not out to get us, and maybe God is working with them in a way we can't, we have, we can't see, we can't recognize, and maybe we don't know the whole story with care and with understanding, because the saints will judge the world. Will then we understand the importance of learning the whole story? Before we're quick to judge, do we recognize and understand the importance of extending mercy today? Do we recognize that we can be fooled by, by what we see and what we hear? And are we willing to grasp that God is working in the lives of, of each one of us in different ways? And we may not always understand it, but, but we, if we can be able to grasp the, the reality that that is what's happening, even as Abraham, to the casual observer, would have seemed to be doing something that was dastardly and horrible, yet in reality, God was working with him in the most, most critical lesson of his life that actually bears upon us today, doesn't it? Because of his obedience in that moment. And yet, if we were there, we might have actually had a very harsh judgment of him. So if we can learn these three lessons, we'll be among the team that God will use to judge the world. You see, because the time will come when we will know the whole story, won't we? The time will come when we will not be fooled by the seeing of our eyes and the hearing of the ears, but we'll, we'll know the hearts. We'll be able to 
to read the hearts. And the time will come when we will know exactly how our God is working with the individuals that we'll be serving. And that day, we will serve and judge the world. How well will we do that job? You be the judge.